What's up, family? How are we doing? Everybody good? Hey, uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. If this is your first time here. Uh, my name's Anson. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, again, like we always do, I want, I want to welcome you to uh, the most inconvenient church in town. So thanks for making the walk. Thanks for parking. Thanks for fighting the traffic. And uh, hopefully, uh, if you did feel like you were completely unsanctified because of the traffic situation when you walked in the room, hopefully you'll feel more holy once this operation's done, okay? Uh, Luke chapter one, go ahead and open your Bibles. If you don't know, again, we're in week three of, of our series, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the gospel of Luke. And we find ourselves today, and, and honestly, one of, the, one of the more famous stories in, in all of the Bible. It's gonna feel a little bit like Christmas up in here today, y'all. Um, so, so Luke chapter one, we're gonna pick it up in verse 26 here in a moment, but before we do, um, so there was one night this week, my wife and I, are, are hanging out in the living room and we're just reading book, a book, right? We're, we're sitting in our little chairs and, and we're, we, she's reading a book and, and I'm reading a book. I'm reading a book about Navy SEALs blowing stuff up. She's reading a book about something godly. I don't even know what it was, but it was something godly. And, and we're just minding our own business, reading our little books and, uh, and our 16-year-old daughter, Annabelle, walks in and she comes into the room. She looks at my wife and she says to her while we're sitting there reading books, she said, Mom, I just want you to know, you are my favorite person in the world ever. My wife looked at her and said, Annabelle, that is so sweet. And I looked at her and said, Annabelle, that is so rude. I'm sitting right here, man. He's going to say that right in front of me? Right in front of me. You're just going to come out and just put it out there like that. Really? And I guess she realized what she did because immediately she backpedaled. She goes, oh, I mean, Dad, I mean, like, you're my favorite too. You're my favorite too. I said, no, ma'am. That's not how favorites work, okay? <laughs> the rule of favorites is there can only be one favorite. There's just this thing as two or three favorites, right? They, they, by definition, a favorite is just one favorite. She says, no, dad, I can have more than one favorite. I said, okay, let's test this crazy theory of yours right now. Let's fact check this thing, okay? Here we go. And so I got out my iPhone and I went to Merriam-Webster online and I looked up the word favorite. And I want to read you the definition that I got from Webster's dictionary, the word favorite. You know what the, you know what the, you know what the uh, definition is? Here it is, family. Definition of the word favorite is one... First word, one that is treated or regarded with special favor. Did you get the key word there? It's one, it's just one. So I read this to my daughter and said, see, you can only have one favorite. I said, think of it this way. If you're stranded on a desert island and you can only take one flavor of ice cream with you, Annabelle, you can only choose one, which flavor of ice cream would you take with you? She thought about it. She goes, well, probably Haagen-Dazs, Dolce de Leche. I said, exactly, because that's your favorite. She said, no, I'd take chocolate too. I said, uh-uh, you're not allowed to. You can only take your favorite. You got one favorite, you'd take Dolce de Leche to the desert island because that's your favorite. And apparently, you'd take mom because she's your favorite. <laughs> she said, no, daddy, I disagree. I can have more than one favorite. I said, Annabelle, you don't get to disagree. It's the definition of the word is one. You don't get to disagree. I win the debate. I win the argument. And she looked at, she looked at my wife and she said, see mom, this is why you're my favorite. <laughs> it totally backfired, man. No, 
Here's why I tell you this story, family. Here's why I tell you, like, like we live in a world where, think about this, we live in a world where, where there are some things that there can only be one of. There's some things there can only be one of. You can only have one favorite flavor of ice cream. You can only have one favorite parent. And in our house, apparently that's my wife, right? You, you, you can only have one life in this world. You get one, that's it. You get one, right? There, there is only one God. And in the history of the world, there's only been one woman who was allowed to be the mother of Jesus. Wow. And that's exactly where we find ourselves today in, in Luke chapter one. So, so here's the deal. Like if you weren't here last week, uh, here's what we saw last Sunday in the story right before this. So we were introduced uh, to a man named Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. They're really, really old. They're a ministry couple. They've been in ministry for a long time. They're very, very old and they don't have a child. They, they haven't been able to have children. And then something incredible happens. Something magnificent happens, right? After 400 years of God giving the silent treatment to the nation of Israel, uh, an, an angel, the angel Gabriel shows up to Zechariah and his message to Zechariah is, hey buddy, get ready. You're going to have a baby. God has heard your prayers and you're going to have a baby. And you're to name that baby John, which means God will be gracious. And that baby's going to grow to be a great prophet who's going to prepare the way for the savior of the world. This magnificent event happens right before this story that we pick up in verse 26. And so follow this family. What our boy Luke, who's writing this gospel, is trying to you know, signal to us right at the beginning of this book is, hey, God is getting ready to do something huge. Something amazing is about to happen, right? That's what he's, that's, that's what he's signaling to us. And then we pick it up in verse 26 and we begin to see specifically what this huge, amazing thing that God's about to do is gonna be, right? So we get to verse 26 and, and we'll just dig in, okay? Luke chapter one, starting at verse 26 is his family. In the sixth month, now that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. That's where we just came from, okay? So we're talking about she's six months pregnant, six months of her pregnancy, watch this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named what, family? Nazareth. Nazareth, Nazareth, Nazareth. Or another way we could say it would be in the sixth month, the angel was sent from God to the middle of stinking nowhere is, is another way we could say it. And this is kind of crazy, man, that these stories right next to each other, right? Because like last week, last week earlier on in, in Luke chapter one, right? When, when, when Zechariah had an encounter with the angel Gabriel, th think about this, go back to me if you were, if you were here last week, uh, where was it, family, that the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah? Where was Zechariah? In the temple. Think of that. Okay, so Zechariah was in the temple in Jerusalem when the angel appears to him. Now, here's the deal. We would totally expect that. What better place to see an angel than in the temple in Jerusalem? Like, duh, of course. That, that, yeah, that totally makes sense. But now, this is stunning. Because just a, just a few verses later, 
The God of the universe has now sent his angel to the backside of the sticks. We're talking 20 miles from the nearest cow. You got to understand, because some of us are going, no, I've heard of Nazareth, but here's what you got to get. I don't know if you know this or not. The only reason you and I have ever heard of Nazareth is because of this story. That's the only reason we've ever heard of the town Nazareth family. I mean, there is nothing, there's literally nothing at all impressive about first century Nazareth. It's, it's, it's what we commonly refer to as flyover country, right? You don't stay in Nazareth. You don't stop in Nazareth. You don't live in Nazareth. You go through Nazareth, right? The only, the only reason, the only reason it's called a city here in these verses is because there was no Hebrew word for podunkville, right? Um, In all seriousness, there's no Hebrew word for town. It was just a city or a village of a few people. So they had to call it a city because there there was no other Hebrew word for it. But you gotta understand, family, think about this. If you read the entire Old Testament, you know what you find? Not a single time in the Old Testament do you ever read about Nazareth. It's not mentioned once. Nazareth was never mentioned in Jewish rabbinical literature at all. Matter of fact, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus never mentions Nazareth, talks about a ton of stuff, never talks about Nazareth. How many of you ever been on a road trip, right? You're on a road trip and you find yourself on some back roads and uh, you end up in, in a real rural area and you're at this spot, right, where for miles and miles and miles, all you see is trees and grass and tumbleweeds, right? And you pass by some random dude on the side of the road selling van seats and bulb peanuts and, and it's the only sign of life. And then, and, then, and then at some point in the middle of that void of depressing nothingness, what do you always see? A Dollar General. <laughs> you don't know what I'm talking about. Right? Well, you just like to know that. It's like this is post-apocalyptic world, man. And all of a sudden, boom, this big yellow store is there. And you're wondering, who shops here? I haven't seen a house in three hours, man. Like, who shops? By the way, that's, that's how you know you're in the middle of nowhere when even Walmart won't go there, right? It's just like a, a Dollar General pops up. Well, here's what I'm trying to tell you. So Nazareth is where the Dollar General is, Right? Here's what we know about first century Nazareth. It was maybe 150 to 200 people, maybe maximum, who lived there. 98% of them would have been illiterate because they they, they didn't have really education there in Nazareth. 100% of the people in Nazareth would have been beneath the poverty line, which is exactly why, I don't know if you remember this story or not, but in the Gospel of John, John tells us something interesting in chapter one. There's this moment where Nathaniel, who will end up being one of the disciples of Jesus, he's first introduced to Jesus. And he hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, right? In John 146, and I don't know if you remember what he said, but Nathaniel hears that Jesus is from the city of Nazareth and he responds by going, remember, he goes, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's like, come on, man. Ain't nobody, good. Ain't nobody good from Nazareth. Are you serious right now? But follow this, family. This is exactly where God, of all places, sends the angel Gabriel, not to a palace in Jerusalem. He sends the angel Gabriel to a mud hut on the backside of nowhere. And then we read this. Look at verse 26 again, family. Watch what it says. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. 
And the virgin's name was Mary. So we get some insight onto the message of the angel, right? God's message to the angel Gabriel is this. Hey, I want, you to, I want you to go to the city of Nazareth, the town of Nazareth, and you're going to appear to a virgin that's in Nazareth with a message. So, so go to the Virgin Mary there in Nazareth with a message. So, so, so now, before we go any further, the question we all need to ask is, uh, who, who is this Mary? Who is this gal? Who is she really? Like, who... Who in the world is Mary? And I'm thrilled that you are curious because I want to answer that question right now. Mary, Mary here's, bottom line is this. Mary is a nobody living in the middle of Nowheresville. She's, a, she's, she's no one significant. Bible scholars tell us that Mary most likely was somewhere between the ages of 12 and 14. Do you know that? We're talking about a really, really young lady here. She was most likely illiterate because first century peasant girls tended to be illiterate. They didn't offer education to females in that day in ancient Israel. Her knowledge of the Bible would have been limited to what she heard in her home or what she heard in the synagogue on the Lord's day. And just like everybody else in Nazareth, she, her, she and her family would have been way poorer than anybody else in this room. By far, right? And at this particular moment in Luke chapter one, what do we read? Here's, here's this young girl, Mary, living in Nazareth who is betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, now here's the thing, what's complicated is that we as 21st century Americans, we hear that Mary's betrothed to Joseph and we immediately go, okay, I'm tracking with that, I get it, she's engaged. No, she's not engaged, she's betrothed. And, and you gotta understand, like betrothal in, in, ancient, in the ancient Jewish world in the first century was very different than our you know, 21st century engagement, right? Because like, like if, you know, in our culture, man, if you break off an engagement, if you break off an engagement, I mean, like you're stuck with a ring and you're stuck with some really expensive cards we call announcements. And, and you know, it's complicated relationally. Yeah, there's gonna be some stuff to navigate. It's gonna be weird. But at the end of the day, I mean, you can, you can tap out of that thing and you can break off the engagement, all right? It's, it's really not uh, very complicated in terms of other than relationally. But, but understand, like in the first century in Israel, betrothal was much different because betrothal was actually legally binding. So, so what would happen, it was, it was a legal agreement. So, so a, a young lady as young as 12 years old would be betrothed to a man that her fa the families would agree on and she would be betrothed to this man for, for a period of a year. The betrothal would last one year. And then after the year, there'd be a wedding day and there'd be a party and there'd be dancing and they'd be toasting wine glasses. And then, and then the couple would consummate the, the marriage on that wedding day after that whole thing had occurred, right? So it was a one year deal and the only way the only way you could get out of a betrothal was actually through a legal divorce. You had, to, you had to get divorced, man. In other words, family of betrothal was a huge, significant deal. You couldn't just like, you know, text and call it off. That, that's not how this thing worked. It was a, it was a legally binding, massive deal. Now, now look at verse 28, family. Watch what happens. And he came to her and said, the angel came to her and said, greetings, Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. Wow. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. <laughs> wow. 
Just so you know, family, this actually brings us to the very first point for today, very first truth for today. So we're gonna, we're gonna put this up if you're taking notes, okay? The very first point, very first truth and idea I want you to get out of this text is this, family. Number one, number one, all sinners are desperate for the grace of God. Let's start with Christianity 101. Let's start ground floor stuff right here, man. All sinners are desperate for the grace of God. Incidentally, if you're new to church and you're just kicking the tires on this weird thing and you're like, I think you people are weird, but I'm checking it out as a dare and and I'm here. Just so you know, what what binds these people together who name the name of Jesus and love Jesus is, is first and foremost, we understand this, that we're desperate for the grace of God. You're like, man, these churches, a bunch of people who think they're perfect. Oh, no, 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 no. If we thought we were perfect, we wouldn't be here. We'd be on the lake. Church, church full of a bunch of broken people who understand their need for the grace of God, man. All sinners are desperate for the grace of God. And this is the first point. This is the first idea. And here's what I want to tackle, okay? So here's the thing. So some of you grew up um, Catholic, Right, you grew up Catholic, you grew up in the Catholic Church and that was sort of your, your pedigree and, and that's sort of how you came up involved in the Catholic Church. And so consequently, one of the things that you are most likely taught in the Catholic Church and Catholic dogma is the idea that the reason God chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus Christ was because Mary herself was without sin. This is in doctrine, in Catholic doctrine, this is what they refer to as the immaculate conception, right? This idea that Mary herself was not a sinner, which is why Mary could be the mother of Jesus uh, because, because she wasn't a sinner. And so God chose her based on that merit, that like, like she wasn't a sinner. And so God chose her to be the mother of, of the Lord. And, it's, and, and, and in that idea of the immaculate conception, uh, you can actually pray to Mary because Mary is able to dispense and give out grace, just like Jesus is able to dispense and give out grace because Mary was without sin in the same way that Jesus was without sin. And just so you know, just so you know, if the real Virgin Mary would have heard you teaching that stuff, she'd be shaking her head in frustrated disbelief. If the real Virgin Mary heard you teaching and expounding on that stuff, she'd be shaking her head going, no, what are you talking about? What are you, don't sing to me, don't worship me, don't pray to me. It's not about me, it's about Jesus. What are you doing? I had a Catholic buddy of mine, and, and back years ago, I was talking to him about this. I was like, man, you gotta explain this immaculate conception thing to me and, and this idea that you have that, that Mary was without sin, and that's why she was chosen to be the mother of Jesus. And here's how he explained it. He said, well, here's the illustration I'll use. The illustration he gave me, he said, imagine that sin is a, is a swimming pool. It's a swimming pool, right? And we're all in the pool, and we're drowning. We were drowning in sin, and God picked us up, he saved us out of the sin, he picked us up out of the pool and he rescued us, right? But Mary was on the outside of the pool and she was kind of walking around the pool, but before Mary could fall in, God rescued her and so she had never fallen into the swimming pool of sin, so therefore she was without sin. Now, just so you know, family, here's where that illustration breaks down. The Bible doesn't say that we were all born innocent and then eventually fell into sin. The Bible says we're all born into sin, which means we didn't fall into the swimming pool. We were born in the thing. Just like Mary was born in the swimming pool of sin. 
See, family, just to be clear, Mary was a sinner just like you're a sinner and just like I'm a sinner. And this is clear in the scriptures. Later on, just a little bit, in Luke chapter two, when we get to Luke chapter two in about six months, what we're gonna discover is there's this moment where Mary and Joseph are walking up to the temple to make sacrifices in the temple. Why? Because that's what sinners used to do. In Acts chapter one, where do we find Mary? Mary's huddled up with the other disciples of Jesus and other believers in Jesus. And what are they doing? They're worshiping Jesus. They're praying together. Why? Because that's what saved sinners do. And then, and then here's the, to top it all off, notice what happens here in Luke chapter one. Did you happen to notice what the angel said, what Gabriel said to Mary when he walks in the room, when he appears to Mary? He says to her, he says, greetings, O favored one. Greetings, O favored one. Why does that matter, Pastor Anson? What matters because that word favored in the Greek is the word charis, which literally means grace. The angel says, greetings, O graced one. You're graced. See, beloved, here's the point. Listen, God God did not choose Mary to be the mother of Jesus because she was sinless and perfect. God chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus because our God is incredibly gracious. And our God loves to show grace to sinners. So man, like if you're here today and you're like, well, I want peace with God. I want a relationship with God. I want to know that my sins are forgiven. I want to know that I have eternal life. I want to know that, that, that I have a relationship with the God who made me and the God who loves me. If that's you, here's what I want to say to you. Here's what I would tell you to do if you want a relationship with God today. Don't pray to Mary. Don't sing to Mary. Don't worship Mary. But instead, beloved, get grace from the same exact place that Mary had to get grace, and that's from Jesus. You get grace from Jesus. See, beloved, Mary was a sinner just like you and just like me, and she experienced grace from God. God was her Savior. She needed a Savior just like we need a Savior, and we know that, beloved, because in the song she's going to get ready to sing here at the end of chapter 1. You know what she's going to say in verse 46 and 47? It says this. It says, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She needs a savior just like we need a savior and he's our savior. And every, every single person in the world is desperate for the grace of God because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, pay close attention to what Gabriel now says to Mary here in, in verse 31 because he's about to get kicked up a notch, okay? Check this out. Verse 31 says, and behold, the angel says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, And you shall call his name, what family? How awesome is that name? And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. (laughs) Now, this brings us to the second point for today, which is this. Here we go. Here we go. You ready? Number two, what we believe about the virgin birth matters. This is important stuff, man. I wonder, beloved, do you actually believe, do do you actually believe that Jesus Christ was born 
of a virgin. Not just that Jesus lived, not just that Jesus existed. Do you really believe that Jesus was born of, of a virgin? 100% was born of a virgin. I read a statistic this week that was, I mean, it kind of it made my brain want to jump out the back of my head, man. It was like this, this stat that said, uh, it said 95%, hang on me, 95% of uh, evangelical Christians in America believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, wow, that's a pretty good number. That's a pretty huge statistic. Okay, but, but think about what I just said for a second. It didn't say 95% of people in America believe that Jesus was born a virgin. That's not what it said. It said, it said 95% of evangelical Christians in America believe that Jesus was born a virgin, which means this. What that means is that right now, today, in American churches, about 5% of the people who have shown up are singing to Jesus, worshiping Jesus, giving to Jesus, and they don't believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. The family, here's why that's crazy. Just to be clear, listen, Jesus' identity as the Son of God has everything to do with whether or not he's born of a virgin or not. We're not talking Calvinism, Arminianism here and having a debate. This is about the identity of Jesus. It has everything to do with whether or not he's, he's the son of God, the fact that he was born of a virgin. And yet, man, yet, yet, yet stunningly, there's still a ton of, of, of people in churches and people who claim to be Christians. And there's a ton of even pastors, man, pastors who, who bring into question the virgin birth back years ago, there was this really influential guy, influential pastor of a mega church, man, thousands and thousands and thousands of people, writing books, looked cool, making cool videos, doing his thing, everybody loved him, right, and he's, he's selling all these books, and, and he, he, wrote a, he wrote a book that did really well at the Christian bookstore, and it brought into question the virgin birth. It brought into question whether or not Jesus was born of a virgin, and I'm not going to tell you the pastor's name, Rob Bell, but here's what he said. <laughs> Sorry, hiccuped. Um, here's what he said in this book, man, that, that, that flew off the shelves, man, flew off the shelves in the Christian bookstore. Everybody buying it. Tell you, Did you read this? It's amazing. So what this, this is what this guy said. A pastor, a pastor. He says, uh, we'll throw up on the, on the Jumatron for you. He says, what if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry? And archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw in to appeal to the writers of the Mithra and Dionysian religious cults that were hugely popular at the time of Jesus whose gods had virgin birth. But what if as you study the origin of the word virgin, you discover that the word virgin in the gospel of Matthew actually comes from the book of Isaiah and then you find out that in the Hebrew language at that time, the word virgin could mean several things. And what if you discover that in the first century, being born of a virgin also referred to a child whose mother became seriously, became pregnant the first time she had intercourse. What if that spring were seriously questioned? Could a person keep on jumping? Could a person still love God? Could you still be a Christian? Is the way of Jesus still the best possible way to live? Or does the whole thing fall apart? If the whole thing falls apart, we re-examine and rethink one spring, then it wasn't that strong in the first place, was it? Okay, but... <laughs> So, so follow this for a second. 
Here's a pastor, man, and the pastor comes along, and he's, he's the pastor, and so you listen to the pastor, right? And the pastor says, hey, man, come on, guys, let's be honest. Like, if it turned out the virgin birth wasn't true, would we as Christians really lose anything? And the answer is, uh-huh, we lose Jesus. We lose Jesus. Like, if, if Jesus isn't born a virgin, we, like, we lose Jesus. Because get this, if, if the virgin birth isn't true, then, then right now we're gathered together in this room and we're not worshiping the Son of God up in here. We're worshiping the Son of Larry. And I don't know if you've noticed, man, but those Christmas songs we sing every year don't have the same ring to it if you're singing them to the Son of Larry. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the Son of Larry. Not the same deal. It's not the same, not, not the same. Family, let me be clear, the entire identity of Jesus as the Son of God who can forgive your sins, who can forgive your sins completely and absolutely, depends on his virgin birth. Here's why, Genesis chapter 3, 15, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, both Old Testament prophecies that prophesy that, G, that the Son of God, Jesus, will be born of a virgin. Additionally, go back and read the gospel writers. Read Matthew and Luke, who were the ones who tell us about the virgin birth. You know what they're, you're gonna find when you read Matthew and Luke? Matthew and Luke are completely and totally convinced that Jesus, like she's a virgin, born of a virgin. Matthew even goes as far in verse 18 to chapter one to tell us before she was ever with Joseph, she became pregnant with the Holy Spirit, right? How do you bring that into question? Unless you don't believe the inspiration of scripture. Furthermore, the virgin birth is proof that Jesus is both 100% man and he's 100% God. And guess what, family? That's really important because that's, that is necessary for Jesus to be able to do anything about our sin. We have a problem that requires outside intervention from God. And we have a debt that only a human can pay. It is necessary that Jesus be 100% man and 100% God. And finally, beloved, being born of a virgin and conceived of the Holy Spirit is the only way that Jesus could have possibly been without sin. <laughs> so does the virgin birth really matter? Yeah, huh? Sure does. Babe, watch this. So rich, man. Gabriel just told this young girl, Mary, living on the backside of nowhere, you will give birth, what do you say, to the son of the most high God. Now, with that in mind, can we all just collectively agree to never, ever, ever again sing that terrible song, Mary, did you know? You're like, well, that's my favorite Christmas song. Well, I love you, but you have terrible taste in music. Like really pretty melody, I'll give you that, and horrible theology. <laughs> Go back and listen to it. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Yes. <laughs> did you know your song's bad? <laughs> totally new, totally new. So how will young Mary now respond to this incredible life-changing news? How is she gonna respond to this? This young girl. Well, look at verse 34, family. Watch what it says. And Mary said to the angel, watch this, how will this be since I am a what, family? So apparently she's convinced she is. <laughs> These guys make money writing this stuff, dude. How will this work? How will this be since I am a virgin? 
Now, now here's the deal, family. If you're paying attention last week, you might be tempted to think that Mary's about to be struck mute. Right? Because remember what happened? Like Zechariah's told, hey, God's heard your prayer. You're going to have a baby. And Zechariah responds with, prove it. Okay? And, 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 and the angel's like, okay, I'll prove it. Bam, you can't talk for nine months. How's that for proof? Right? And so he struck mute because he didn't believe God. He didn't believe what God said, so he struck, he struck mute for nine, for nine months. But, but here's the thing, family. You got to understand and we're going to see this, what happened to Zechariah, what's going on with Zechariah and what's going on with Mary here is not the same thing because Zechariah responded with unbelief. Mary just responded with a question for clarification. Mary's question here isn't rooted in unbelief. Matter of fact, it's rooted in belief. She's just asking for, okay, how exactly is this going to work? See, here's what we got to understand, beloved. Mary doesn't, Mary doesn't respond to God by not believing God, Mary responds to God by asking a question of clarification. Another way to say it would be this, maybe this would be helpful. We'll throw it up on the screen. This is your third point. You ready? Number three, having questions is not the same thing as having unbelief. It's just not. And the thing is, some of y'all in here, you got tons of questions about the Bible. You got tons of questions about Jesus. You got tons of questions about the gospel and sin and how does this work and how does that work? But you're kind of scared to ask them because maybe you grew up in an environment, man, where you weren't encouraged to ask your, you weren't really encouraged to ask your questions about the Bible or ask your questions about a sermon or ask your questions about a verse because you were kind of made to feel like if I ask a question, people are gonna think I don't have faith or I don't trust the Lord or I don't believe, right? But you gotta understand, having a question is not the same thing at all about as, as having unbelief, there's a huge difference. Listen, there's a huge difference between having a simple question for the Lord and having unbelief. Unbelief says this. Unbelief says, I don't believe the Bible is true. I don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I don't believe that sin is a thing, right? That's what unbelief says. Belief, on the other hand, says, hey, I believe the Bible is true. I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I believe that sin is real and I got a ton of questions about those things because I want to, I want to have more understanding and I want to be more clear on that stuff. So I've, so I've got questions about it. And can I tell you the good news, family? Here's a really good news, man. Our God who made everything, our God who made the galaxies and made you, guess what? He's real big and he's even big enough to handle all your questions. Like you should bring your questions to church. You should bring your questions to pastors. You should bring your questions to MC group leaders and mentors in the church who know the Bible and love Jesus and have wisdom. This should be a place where you're, man, we celebrate asking questions about God and his word and the Bible and the gospel and sin because man, where else should you get answers? Not the world. You come to church, you bring your questions about that stuff and we should celebrate that. I got, I got an email, uh, I got an email within the past two weeks. It was, it was right after week one of Luke and the missional community is launched and one of our missional community hosts uh, emailed me. And she said, hey, Pastor Anson, she said, this past, uh, this past week, the other night in our group, there was, there was a lady in our group and she had a question. And her question was, hey, um, if Luke never introduces himself or clarifies that it's him in the gospel of Luke, if he never comes right out and says it, how do we know for sure that Luke wrote it? And you know, you know, what I, you know how I responded? I wrote an email back and said, tell her to stop disbelieving God and stop trying. No, I didn't. 
I wrote an email back and I said, that is a great question of clarification. Matter of fact, I should have gone down that rabbit trail in my sermon, but instead of being an hour-long sermon, it'd be an hour-and-a-half sermon, and the people would revolt. And so, so here's, here's the answer. And I was able to write a long email and copy and paste some commentary stuff on my Logos Bible software to give the clarification and the answers for, for, for how we know Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. You know what, listen, that wasn't a question out of unbelief. That was a question for clarification. That was a, that was a heart that was really seeking God. It's a heart that's truly seeking the Lord and seeking clarification. And family, listen, this is exactly what we see Mary doing right here. Notice when the, when the angel says, you're gonna have a baby, you're gonna conceive in your womb. Da, da, da. Notice that she doesn't go, how can this be? She says, how will this be? How will this be? Mary's like, okay, Gabriel, I believe you. I believe you. But last time I checked, not a whole lot of virgins in Lamaze class, so can you explain a little bit in more detail how a virgin's gonna conceive? She has a question of clarification, a really good question. Now, pay close attention to what Gabriel says right now, family. Look at verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, let me explain to you what this doesn't mean real quick. So in Islam, they wrongly teach that God uh, literally had relations with Mary and that's how she became pregnant with Jesus. And just to be clear, that is, that is heretical nonsense. In no way, shape, or form does the Bible even come close to suggesting something that crazy. Instead, notice closely what the, Gabriel said, what, what, what the angel Gabriel said to Mary. He says, the Holy Spirit's gonna come upon you. And then he gives a little more clarity. He says, the, uh, the, the, the most high, watch this. He says, the most high will overshadow you. This is fascinating because that word overshadow is the same exact Greek word that's used in the story about the Mount of Transfiguration and the glory of God overshadows the mountain. It's, it's very rarely used. And that's the other instance where it's used is when God, the glory of God, overshadows the Mount of Transfiguration. In other words, family, what, 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 what we're being told here in the scriptures is that somehow, some way, mysteriously, Almighty God is going to cause the Virgin Mary to become pregnant. And some of you are like, well, pastor, explain that. And I respond by going, I can't explain it because I don't have the mind of God. I don't, I don't know. I can't, ex I can't explain. So, okay, I don't know. Like, like God just said, the spirit of the most high is going to overshadow and you're going to become pregnant. Now, now, here's the thing. It's at this line, or it's, it's at this point where a lot of people like draw the line and they sort of opt out of Christianity, right? It's at this point where a lot of people just opt out of the Bible stuff. And they go, that, see, that, yeah, that's why I don't do this church thing. That's why I don't do the whole Christianity deal and the whole Bible gig. That's why I don't do it because like I can't understand it. Like if I don't know how something works, I'm not going to put my faith in it. If I don't understand how something works, I'm not going to trust it. Just so you know, that's a, that's a terrible decision to make. Which brings us to the fourth point for today, family. The fourth point is this. Get this, number four. Listen, just because I don't know how something works, that doesn't make it not true. <laughs> 
Like in our arrogance, we assume, well, I've, if, I don't, if I don't know how something works, it must not be helpful for me. But when do we ever act like that, ever, like in our lives? See, family, listen, somewhere on the line, here's what we gotta understand. Just because you don't know how something works, that doesn't mean it's not useful. Doesn't mean it's not helpful. For example, I don't know, maybe some of you are smart and you get this. I, I'm just a regular dude. Listen, I have no clue how my iPhone works. No idea. It could be that magic voodoo stuff for all I know. I just know that it does work. I just know somebody on the other side of the world can write me a message or I can, I can do the FaceTime thing and I can see the faces of my daughters and we can have a conversation. That's all I know. Or I can do what some of y'all have done this morning. I can play Wordle during a sermon. Repent. Um, I don't know how it works. I don't know, I have no clue how it works. I just know that it does work. And I know it's really useful for me. Really helpful. I don't know how my car works. I don't know. I don't care, frankly. I just wanted to get, I wanted to get me from here to back home and from back home to here. I don't know how, I don't, I, I don't know what a catalytic converter is. I don't know and I don't care. I just care that it's, it's helpful for me. I don't, you ever thought about this? I don't know how my eyes work. You think about how weird eyes are? I'm about to get philosophical and deep. Some of y'all are gonna leave the church after this, but listen. I, you, ever, you ever thought, like my eye, like right now, I'm, I'm somehow looking at you through these things and I see light hitting, and it's creating shapes and I'm, I, I just, my, my eyes are somehow sending a signal to my brain telling me what you look like and some look better than others and I just, I, I'm, I'm right now, it's, it's being deciphered in my mind and I don't know how it works. But that doesn't frustrate me. It doesn't frustrate me that I don't know how my eyes work. I'm not walking around going, well, that's not fair. I don't know how my eyes work. So I'll just cut them out. That'll show you, God. Yeah. He's like, you weirdo. It doesn't frustrate me that I don't know how my, right right now, this is like magic. You ever thought about that? I'm thinking that my hand should move and it moves the way that I think it should. Like I'm telling it to do that and it's doing it. It just totally obeys, right? It's just weird. I don't know how that works. I just know that it works and I just know that it's helpful. Family, listen, even though I have no clue how something works, it can still be incredibly helpful. Beware of rejecting the Bible simply because your three and a half pound brain doesn't understand all its mysteries. I tell you how many times, man, I've, I've, I've seen people, like, heartbreakingly, this happens, man. I remember having a conversation with a guy one time, buddy of mine. He said, I don't believe this stuff. I don't, I don't believe this stuff is true. I don't, I don't believe this. I think it's dumb. I was like, why do you think the Bible's dumb? He's like, well, I'll give you one example. The story of Jonah and the big fish, and you really believe that, man? You believe, you believe that, 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 that Jonah, some dude, got swallowed by a fish and survived for three days and three nights? That's not possible. How is it possible for some guy to get swallowed by a fish and survive in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights? That's dumb. I said, no, bro, you're asking the wrong question. He said, what do you mean I'm asking the wrong question? I said, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking how it's possible for a man to get swallowed by a fish and survive for three days and for three nights. What you actually ought to be asking is how amazing and powerful is God that a guy can get swallowed by a fish and God can keep him alive in there for three days and three nights. Awesome, you're asking, how is it possible for a virgin to become pregnant? No, 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 how powerful is God that he can cause a virgin to be pregnant? Now watch verse 36, family, watch this, check this out. 
<laughs> the angel says, and behold, your relative Elizabeth, remember her? Relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. Mary wasn't privy to this yet. She's also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Man. And that's how I made it easy for you. That's the next point. You ready? Write it down. Nothing is ever impossible with God. There's nothing that's impossible with God. Man. So back some years ago, I was a student pastor, right? I was a youth pastor. And, you know, I cut my teeth in ministry being a student pastor for some years. And you learn a lot. And it's, it's kind of like a gauntlet, man. Because every now and then, what's funny about student ministry, you know, weird stuff happening in student ministry. But one of the things that I always just, I, I would love it when the, uh, the young ninth grade kid, I was, I was a high school pastor. And so the ninth grade kid coming up ninth grader would graduate in the ministry. And he'd come in and, and, and think he was all cool because he, he read a magazine article or something. So he tried to stump the pastor, right? He tried to stump me. And uh, he'd come up to me and be like, hey, Pastor Anson, I got a question for you. I'm like, okay. He's like, uh, uh, do you really believe that? God is all powerful. I'm like, sure do, man, sure do. God's all powerful. Nothing is impossible with God. He said, okay, then I got a question for you. Can God create a rock that's so heavy even he can't lift it? Then he'd high five his friends, got him, right? And he's just like, everybody's, yeah, yeah. Because it's supposed to stump you, right? Especially because like if you say, well, no, God can't create a rock that's so big he can't lift it. He's like, oh, well, he's not all powerful. But if you say, yeah, God can create a rock that's so big he can't lift it. He, he, again, they go, well, he's not all powerful. He can't lift everything, right? So, so it was meant to stump you, right? So it would always frustrate and maybe even stun the, the little ninth grade kid when I would turn to him and say, um, no, God actually can't create a rock that's so big that even he can't lift it. And he's like, well, I guess that means God's not all powerful. I said, oh no, quite the contrary. It means that God is all powerful because since God is all powerful all the time, it means there are certain things that God can't ever do. God can't lie. God can't die and God can't stop being God, which means God can do anything he purposes to do and he can even, little Johnny, do the impossible. God can do the impossible. Like for instance, God can create a universe out of nothing and God can cause a virgin to become pregnant and God can even maybe one day give you some intelligence. Says, well, I wasn't a youth pastor for long, right? <laughs> Beloved, there's nothing impossible with God. Nothing's ever impossible with God. God can save sinners. God can answer prayers. God can reconcile broken friendships. God can advance the gospel in a godless world. God can heal marriage because that's who he is. Nothing's impossible with God. And here's the deal, family. The question now becomes this. How will, it, how will a 12 to 14-year-old peasant girl respond to this magnificent announcement? Like, how would you respond? Your whole life's gonna change. The entire script of your life, like what you thought the script was gonna be, it's gone now. How would you respond to this? How's she gonna respond to this life-changing mission? Well, let's see. Look at verse 38. <laughs> and Mary said, wow, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. You know what that word is in the Greek? Handmaiden. I'm the handmaiden of the Lord. You know what a handmaiden was? It was the lowest servant imaginable in that day. 
Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Wow, dude. And this brings us to the final point for today, which is this, family, listen. Mary is not the object of our faith, but Mary is a powerful example of faith. I think, I think one of the things that happens, you know, so those who grew up in Catholicism, one of the dangers is you make too much out of Mary. And then those of us who are, who are more Protestant, oftentimes what we're guilty of is just ignoring her altogether. But I love what Kent Hughes, a Bible scholar, says in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke. I love what Kent Hughes says about Mary. I want to read this to you. We'll put it up on the screen for you, family. This was so rich to me. He says, uh, he says, Mary was the only woman of the billions who have inhabited our planet who was chosen to carry and nurse God's son. For that we must call her blessed. Hers was the face that unto Christ had most resemblance. The Savior bore some of her human features. Jesus' face could be seen in hers. Think of it. She's blessed indeed. Just because others have thought too much of her, we must not imagine that our Lord is pleased when we think too little of her. We, as part of the subsequent Christian generations, are to call her blessed. So we've got to be real careful, family, because like on the one hand, like we should not worship Mary, but on the other hand, we shouldn't ignore Mary either because how incredible is this example of faith? 12 to 14 years old? Think of that. I got a 16-year-old daughter. I got a 12-year-old daughter. And the angel just made this announcement to her. She says, let it be to me according to your word. <laughs> Maybe sometimes we don't give our 12-year-olds enough credit, man. Right? It's amazing. She says yes to what God just requested. And guess, here's, here's a crazy thing. You thought about this? You imagine what it's going to cost her to say yes to God at this moment? She's going to pay a price. It's going to cost her. Like in the same way, anybody, anybody who says, yes, Jesus, I'm yours, repent of my sin, trust in you, it costs, it costs something. This is why Jesus tells us to count the cost. Like it costs to follow Jesus. It's gonna cost her big time to say yes to God right now. Think about it. It's gonna cost her socially. Growing up in Nazareth, everybody knows she's betrothed. It's like a small town, man. They're all talking. And here she is pregnant. And everybody's going, yeah, you know, I, you know she, she's betrothed to Joseph, but look, she's pregnant already. I mean, you talk about, you talk about the shame that's gonna be heaped upon her. And we read later in the gospels, Jesus referred to as illegitimate, right? Because, because of what people were saying about Mary. It's gonna cost her socially. It's gonna cost her relationally. There might be some, some stuff to navigate through with Joseph, right? When she walks in pregnant, goes, seriously, honey, God did this. We, they, might, they might be some counseling. There might be some, some conversation. That might get a bit awkward, amen? It's gonna cost her financially. Anybody in here ever had a baby? It ain't free. It's gonna cost you something. She's already poor. And yet in spite of all this cost, what does young Mary say? Man, listen to her words here. What does she say? Let it be to me 
according to your word. And I was thinking about it this week. I was like, wow, that sounds interestingly similar to something Jesus says later on in his ministry when he's in a garden praying, not my will, but thy will be done. He probably learned a lot from his mama. What an incredible example of faith, man. Now let me tell you why this story matters so much. Let me tell you why it matters. 100% matters that this is literal. This isn't, this isn't mythology. This isn't some depiction. This isn't some strategy by the writers like Pastor said earlier in his book to try to make it relevant to other cultures. Let me tell you why this matters that this story is 100% true. So there's, a, there's this uh, professor and author, uh, Brene Brown, who's written some books. And, and one, of the, one of the things uh, I appreciate is she gave a really good illustration one time that I heard about the difference between sympathy and empathy. I thought this, for me as a, a believer, was just really powerful just thinking about how this relates even to the Lord. She was talking about the difference between sympathy and empathy. How many of y'all know like sympathy and empathy are two very different things, right? And she said, she, she, here's the illustration she used. She said, imagine it this way. Uh, imagine that you're, you fall into a dark pit. It's like 20 feet down. There's, you can't get out. You're, you fall into the dark pit, right? And you're screaming, and it's dark, and it's terrifying, and it's scary, and it's creepy, right? And there you are in that pit. Um, you know what empathy does? Empathy walks over, looks down, you're in the pit going, it's dark in here, I don't like it in here, this is terrible in here. And empathy jumps down into the pit too. It says, wow, this is dark and this is creepy and this is weird, but you know what? You're not alone. We're together now. See, but sympathy's different. You know what sympathy does? Sympathy comes walking over to the pit, looks in and goes, ooh. And you're like, oh, it's dark, it's creepy, it's terrible. And they're like, yep, sure is. Sorry. Well, look on the bright side. You're not dead. Look on the bright side. You didn't break your legs. Look on the bright side. God's still good, right? There's a difference between sympathy and empathy because empathy comes down into the pit with you and sympathy looks down from above and says, yeah, that stinks, but they're really not in the pit with you. Here's why this matters, family. Luke chapter one is so important because the gospel of Christ tells me that God did not just sympathize with me in my plight in this broken world. God actually empathized with me. How? Well, look at what the gospel says. He sent his one and only son, Jesus, to take on flesh to be born of a virgin. And guess what will happen? He's gonna, he's gonna be born of this virgin in the backwoods of Israel in a town that nobody respects. And he's gonna be adopted by an earthly dad named Joseph. And he's gonna grow in stature and in wisdom. And he's gonna be raised in poverty. And he's gonna suffer over and over and over again. But he's gonna be faithful all throughout that suffering. And he's gonna live a perfect life in perfect obedience to God the Father. And this baby who's gonna be born to this virgin will one day be crucified on a cross because God, God did not just look down from heaven on our burdens. God came down from heaven to take on our burdens. You see it? It matters that this is true. 
Jesus' identity is all wrapped up in this virgin birth. Let's pray together, family. And I wonder, beloved, do you know Jesus? Do you follow Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus? Is your faith in Jesus? Have you ever turned from your sin and believed the good news that Jesus really was born of a virgin and he really is 100% God and 100% man and therefore he really is able to do something about your sin? The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh, lived the perfect life that you would never live was betrayed at the hands of men, nailed to a cross, suffered, and he died. Then three days later, he rose again from the grave. He defeated death, hell, and the devil so that you could be saved forever. He didn't just look down with sympathy on your burden. He came to bear your burden all the way to a cross. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might be right with God. Just as was read out of Romans chapter 5, verse 8 earlier by Jared, man, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies of God, didn't give a rip about who he is, running from him, didn't care. God came running after us, chased us, pursued us. How awesome is this God who would send his angel to Nazareth, the middle of nowhere, to appear to the Virgin Mary and by grace call her to be the mother of Jesus, our great God and Savior who would do everything we need him to do to provide peace with a holy God for sinners like us. And so would we rejoice today? Would we trust and believe that this good news is true? If you're in this room, man, if you've never trusted in Jesus as your great God and Savior, the Bible says if you, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Salvation's a free gift, man. It's a free gift of grace. Will you say yes to Jesus? Will you believe in Jesus? You're like, well, I don't understand how it works. Well, guess what? Just because you don't understand how it works doesn't mean he can't be trusted. There's some things that God in his wisdom and his enormity has hidden from us. It's like the apostle Paul says, we know in part. And by faith, we trust and we believe and we look to him for salvation. So maybe you're here today and you say, I want to trust in Jesus or I would at least want to know more about what it means to trust in Jesus. I'd invite you to do one of two things. There's a card in the seat back in front of you. You fill it out, your name and stuff and just write on there, just write the word Jesus. That's all you have to write. Your, your name, your information and Jesus. Dump that in one of the boxes by the doors over here. These offering boxes, just dr drop it in there on your way out. We'd love to contact you this week about what it means to follow Jesus or at least answer whatever questions you have. It's a safe place for questions about Bible, the God, sin, Jesus, the gospel, right? And maybe, maybe some of you made your church family and you, you follow Jesus and you know Jesus and your faith is in Christ and you're growing as a believer, man. You're in an MC group, you're, you're just really growing. But still, you know what you got? A ton of questions about this. Well, praise God. Man, let this be a safe place for questions. You got, you, got, you got pastors here at the church. We got elders here at the church. We got MC hosts here at the church. We got mentor type people here at the church. We'd love for you to email your questions. Let us know your questions. Maybe take a question back to somebody on the prayer team. Have them pray for you. And then others of you are just in here and you're hurting this morning. You're just really hurting and you're frustrated and you're fried and you're frazzled and you're stressed out and life's got you down, man. I wanna encourage you to take advantage of, of these people who are praying in the back every single week. 
Right? God, I'll be honest with you, family. Too, too many Sundays go by, too many Sundays go by where we don't take advantage of the throne room of grace. We got people stationed here every single week and they just want to pray for you and pray over you. Maybe the least some of us need to do is just go back to them and go, hey man, I don't have anything going on, but I know this is a broken world, so something's probably coming. Pray for me. You take advantage of the people in the back who are just there to pray over you and pray for you and encourage you during this next song. And for those of us who do know Jesus, the tables are set, the tables are ready for the family of God. Those of us who've been saved by Jesus and what he's accomplished for us through his life and death and resurrection. And we take the bread gladly, those of us who know Christ. We take the bread gladly, representing the body of Jesus, dip it in the cup, representing the blood of Christ, and we eat it remembering and acknowledging the good news of the gospel, that God has loved me so much that he sent Jesus into this world to take on flesh. And so, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Luke chapter 1. Thank you for a magnificent story that we're guilty of only pulling out and dusting off at Christmas, and yet it's so rich. It's such a powerful example of what it looks like to have faith and for your life just to be carte blanche before God and for you to go, God, my, my life's a blank check. Whatever you want, according to your word, let it be. I pray, Lord, for those of us in here who know you and trust in you and follow you, that we might have that kind of faith, God. Whatever you want, Lord, according to your word, not my plans, your word, let it be. We worship you, Lord, and I pray it all to the matchless name of King Jesus. Amen.